What's up, everybody? Welcome to the No Picks After Dark podcast with your host, Aaron Dante, who brings you the hottest interviews with the dopest people sharing their experiences all across the world. Now, here's your host, Aaron Dante. Welcome to the No Picks After Dark podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante. We are coming upon the 20th anniversary for 9-11. And just a moment for me to reflect. I remember that day like it was yesterday. I was walking out of my apartment, and my next-door neighbor said, Hey, Aaron, you can't, I can't believe this. A plane just crashed into World Trade Center. And I'm in college, and I'm like, Really? Like, this uh, can't be. Come on, stop joking. He's like, Aaron, seriously. And I go back into my apartment, and lo and behold, the second plane's going into the World Trade Center. I know everybody probably is thinking, where was I that day? And you all, we all remember that. And again, it's a day of remembrance. And I can't believe it's the 20th year that, you know, 20 years ago this happened. So, folks, again, it's just, you know, just a little tidbit. You'll hear more about it all day, every day that's coming up this weekend. So, again, I just wanted to put my little two cents in there. On this today, on this episode, we have Gary O'Neill Jr. from the C-Plan Do Show. We have Rio giving us some words and wisdom. We also have writer, author, and volunteer EMT, Ms. Jennifer Murphy, coming on. And she's talking about a memoir, A Life and Death of Love, with New York City's frontline first responders. And it's a really good memoir. It talks about first responders when COVID hit and what they went through. And it's, I love it. And it's one of the great books that I've read. And she's a fellow Syracuse alum. So definitely shout out to Cuse. But I can't wait for you guys to listen to her story, the book, and you know her trials and tribulations going through this whole process. And she was on New York Times, um, must book to read for springtime. And she was on New York Times when they did IG Live. So definitely can't wait for you guys to listen to her. We'll be right back after these messages. At Fishnet, every plate served starts with the freshest, high-quality fish sourced from local waters whenever possible. You get fine dining excellence delivered in a cozy, underpretentious, fast-casual setting. Delicious does not even begin to describe it. Everything I've tried is made from scratch and incredible. The best fish I've ever had. Check them out for lunch or dinner at Mount Vernon Marketplace. Get caught in the fishnet. You'll be glad you did. Menu and details at eatfishnet.com. Hey everybody, this is Gary O'Neill Jr., host of the Sea Plan Do Show, and here is your motivational minute. All right, so recently on my podcast, the Sea Plan Do Show, I talked about back to school. So probably right now, this moment, your kids are probably going back to school or already back in school. So to help you out, here are a couple of things. Here's five tips to help you with your children back to school. Number one, set expectations. Uh, explain to your children that this year's school experience may look different than prior. All right. Number two, set those standards. Now, guess what? If your kids were at home, um, to you know, going to school at home like my kids, you know, hey, they can't wear their pajama pants, okay? They have to get up on time, set those standards. Number three, get that morning routine down. So with that morning routine, make sure you lock it down, make sure you go over it and talk to your kids about it because that starts today. Number four, create an evening to-do list, map it out, type it up, laminate it, make it look nice and make it look pretty so that way everybody knows what to do in the evening 
And finally, number five, schedule in plenty of family time. So, of course, with work, with them going back to school, please make sure that you schedule that family time in. Whether you're in the house, outside of the house, physical activities, movie night, whatever it is, please make sure that you schedule that family time. All right. Again, this is Gary O'Neill Jr. with your motivational minute, probably over a minute. And you can always catch me on any of the social media platforms. Check out my podcast, The See, Plan, Do Show. All right. Back to you, Aaron. The No Picks After Dark podcast is proudly partnered with Remix Bar and Grill, located at 819 East Pratt Street, just north of Harbor East. Remix is a sports bar offering a sole food menu. With over 20 TVs, pool tables, outdoor patio seating, and private rooms, Remix is set up to be your premier downtown destination to watch all your favorite sporting events. Open from 11 a.m. until 11 p.m. Monday through Thursday, 11 a.m. to 12 a.m. Friday and Saturday, and 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. Sunday. Check out Remix Bar and Grill on Instagram and Facebook under at R-Y-M-K-S Baltimore for daily happy hour specials and weekly events. Remix Baltimore. I can't believe I get this opportunity, but thank you, Aaron. I appreciate that for the No Picks After Dark podcast. I'm here to represent, and this is Rio Smith with a quick spin. Everyone's asking this week, do you remember? Uh, I do remember. Now, mind you, I'm talking about 9-11, one of the biggest American tragedies on this soil. But let's not take away the fact that I think we all learned a lot from that time period. What is it about tragedy that brings us together? The things that we remember are the things that we don't forget, apparently. But it feels like as soon as time elapses, we start to forget. I mean, let's take bases again. What are the things that we're prioritizing to remember? Did you remember to call your family member back? Did you remember to send that text to somebody who texted you hours ago? Personally, I got that issue myself, and I'm trying to work on it. But it's something that I'm going to work towards. Do you remember to do little things and just say please and thank you? Did you remember that this country belongs to all of us? Some of that solidarity that existed in that time period just immediately after, those things can carry over to today. And I think if we remember that we're all Americans, that we all belong here, and that nobody was here first, I think we could all remember the place we're going. Definitely take time, especially myself, I will, to honor our troops, honor our veterans, honor our first responders. I have parents who were in the military for 20 years plus, and you know that I'm going to show out for them as much as possible. Peace, love, and remember. Who are you? Remember. Be friendly. And remember to lead with love. This is the Quick Spin with Rio. Please follow me at IG, Twitter, Facebook and and TikTok at Act Like MJ Smith. And see me on YouTube as well as Motive at The Real Smith Podcast. See you guys next week. Peace. Visit your neighborhood sanctuary and do wellness for a luxurious experience for everybody. Treat yourself and a loved one with a massage, facial, or an entire day of pampering with our deluxe spa day packages that include lunch from the restaurant next door, fire and rice. For more information, when booking or purchasing gift cards, visit their website at indowellness.com or call at 443-438-4048. They look forward to welcoming you and your loved ones to their beautiful new space at Soha Union, located at 4801 Harper Road, Suite 1. This episode is dedicated to my cousin, 
Tommy Mayweather. He passed away a couple years ago from cancer. He was an NYPD police officer. He was one of the first people on the scene for 9-11. And I just really wanted to show him some love and let everybody know that, you know, you're never forgotten. We love you, Tommy. No Picks After Dark podcast is sponsored by Open Works Baltimore. Open Works is Baltimore's largest market space, offering access to tools ranging from 3D printers to welders and training in how to use them. Open Works also offers affordable studio space, a coffee shop, and fun and free events throughout the year. But Open Works is more than a public works shop. It's a community of creative professionals, students, seniors, entrepreneurs, and makers of all kinds. Check out the website at www.openworksbemore.org or on Instagram at open underscore works underscore bemore for class schedules, membership options, and more. Welcome to the No Picks After Dark podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Dante. Today, folks, we have an amazing guest on. I mean, you know, I found out about this guest through social media. I mean, you know how I have a hate love relationship with social media. You know how I do, folks. And it was one of uh, another alumni from Syracuse. Uh, shout out to Miss Carrie Potts. She said, hey, one of my teammates has a new book out. Go check her out. So I'm like, teammate, she went to Cuse. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a big Cuse guy. Everybody knows that. Um, Die hard orange every day, all day. And, I, you know, I, I did my, you know, the Instagram, like, who is this person? Find out she's a new book out. I'm like, all right, cool. Let me, let me research a little bit more about the book. And I remember seeing her on, it was a New York Times or it was an online chat. And I was like, really impressed. I'm like, let me reach out because she has some really good things that she's talking about that I want to talk about. And she was in the thick of things during COVID and she's wrote a book, wrote a book, wrote a book. I mean, and she's a writer. So, I mean, I'm honored to have Miss Jennifer Murphy on. How are you doing, Miss Jennifer Murphy? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be with another Syracuse alum. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I mean, you, know, you are busy. Like I said, I mean, I see you on all the talk shows. I see you on, on New York <laughs> Times. I mean, you're everywhere. So again, I, I wanted Baltimore to hear your story. Uh, you know, you had the book called The First Responder. And I really, really, and I got it and I was like, I'm going to buy it. I, mean, I want to support you, A. And I said, I told you I'm going to buy a second book to get autographed because I just really, really enjoyed it. And I shared it with other Syracuse alum and they're going to buy the book also. So again, we definitely want to support you and whatnot. Thank you so much for buying the book and all of it. And yes, of course, I'll sign copies for you. Love it. Love it. So before we get into the book, I mean, you know, let's talk a little bit about you. I always get everybody a background about you. You know, tell us just a little bit about you. Are you from New York originally? Are you from the East Coast? So I am a California native. I am from the kind of untalked about California, the Central Valley from a place called Bakersfield. Um, if you tell most people in America that you're from Bakersfield, they'll say I've driven through it because it runs along Highway 99. A lot of people go through it to get to Vegas from the north. Um, so yeah, I'm from like a high desert roadside city out west. And But I, I went to college at Syracuse. I played volleyball there with Carrie Potts, who you mentioned, who I adore. And also, uh, I think like me as a Newhouse grad. And um 
And so New York, I kind of fell in love with the East Coast when I was in college and always wanted to live in New York City and eventually wound up here and have stayed since 1998 with a few breaks, but largely continuous New York City. All right. So that's nice. So this is always a fun question. What is your favorite childhood memory growing up? Oh, there are so many. Um, but one of my favorites, I love to bake. That's kind of a, a running joke through the book because my EMT partner and I often, she also loves to bake. So we'll bake together and try to give away our cakes and cookies to other first responders and nobody ever wants anything to eat because everyone is healthy. But as a child, like my grandmother taught me how to bake. And so I would go to her house and she would get out her pie tins and she had these big brass, like bins of flour and showed me how to make pie crust and muffins and cakes and cookies. And I think, you know, the, those moments in the kitchen baking with my grandmother are for sure some of the happiest memories I have. I love it. I love it. So how did you end up at Syracuse? I mean, I'm thinking to myself, you're from California. Okay. Yeah. You know, and I mean, you got, you, you have the mountains there, you can go to SoCal, you know, everywhere. You skipped all the way across the country to yeah. one of the coldest places ever. And you know, and I know it is cold. The sun never shines in Syracuse until one month a year. And how did you end up all the way to Syracuse? Yeah. So I was, um, I was a heavily recruited volleyball player out of California, um, outside hitter and middle blocker. I'm six one, uh, which helped. And, and all of the great volleyball schools that are like Pac-10 and Division One, they're, they're usually from hot climate states with a few exceptions, like Florida, Texas, California, those girls go on to play the Olympics, like they're, they're really, but as a college athlete, even, you know, from, for someone like me, the, the journey is they own you if you go to that school as that kind of athlete. Athletics is your life, school is your side dish, and they determine what kind of weights you lift, what you eat. You usually see the court around year three when you're a junior, you're going to ride the bench for like a few years. And I, I played volleyball for the scholarship for the money. It was like a job for me. I was not one of those people who um, just loved the sport passionately and wanted to go on to have a career in it. And so I was like, I really want to go to a place. I've always wanted to live on the East coast. So I kind of saw the volleyball scholarship as my way out of, California. And you're right. Many people from California never leave the state because you can get so much just by staying in California. But I, I mean, I'd always kind of wanted the opposite that I grew up with. Like I want four seasons. I wanted to see a lot of different people. I want to kind of know a different type of life in America. So Syracuse was the perfect kind of route out. Okay. And then new house, you, I mean, new house was new house. And is that what really attracted was besides the volleyball was Newhouse, the main attraction. Like I can go to a great school and I, from what I've read and what I've learned from you, from your, all your interviews, you're, you're a writer also. So is that, what did that factor in? Yeah. I mean, I was too scared to study creative writing at Syracuse and they have one of the best creative writing uh, programs in the country in their English department, but I knew about Newhouse and I thought maybe I would go into magazine journalism and then I learned like through writing really and studying English at Syracuse, English, I was a dual major um, and an honor student, but 
I learned that I really liked fiction and creative writing much more than I liked writing journalism. Although, as you mentioned, like, you know, I wrote a, a New York Times op-ed last spring as the book came out and pushed a piece of Time magazine that came out and I'm working on other essays. So I like essays, but it's pure journalism. I kind of didn't fall in love with in a way that I expected, but the Newhouse degree holds some gravitas, like it holds some weight, you know, on the East Coast. It's for sure a good school to come from. Nice, nice, nice. All right, so we're gonna get into the we're gonna get into the to the to the meat of the dish here. We're talking about the book, okay? Again, it's a great book. I've read through it. You know, it's a front lines book. It was like I said, it was in time. It was amazing to read. I'm not a reader, so I'll be the first one to tell you I'm not a reader. But I was very interested about what was going on. The memoirs of life, of death, and love of New York City's front line workers. Like that's amazing. Where did you get the concept from? Let's start from the beginning. Where did it come from? Tell the listeners a little bit about like, all right, I want to write a book about what I do. Like, where does, because I, I read about your friend from 9-11. You talked a little bit, talk a little bit about that. But I want you to tell me your words, how this all came about. So it came about and, you know, the book was written in an emergency um, when COVID exploded in New York City, uh, which was last spring, spring of 2020. And uh, prior to that, in March, I had actually just finished the novel that I was working on. And I was, I was pretty happy with it. I was shopping, looking for literary agents. And then I was, I volunteer as an EMT, as you know, I've been an EMT for over four years now, which is, you know, not a long time. And COVID hit in late March, early April, as we moved into the spring and I was on the ambulance and I started having this, I kind of pushed the fiction aside and stopped pushing the novel to get a literary agent and started writing about what I was seeing and feeling and hearing on the street. And it was, you know, it was obviously in New York City, the the last biggest mass trauma was 9-11 here. Um, and COVID was very quickly becoming the second largest mass trauma. And, and I had this urge to kind of tell the story straight, to not to not beat around the bush, to not make things up, to not wear a mask, just to kind of open the floor to voices from the street. And I felt it was going to be important to hear from EMTs because in New York City, the sound of last spring were ambulance sirens. It was an, uh, it was an emergency medical services emergency, hands down. And whereas 9-11, what you hear most is from the fire department, right? And the, and the police department, this was an EMS emergency. And I wanted people to hear from EMT. And you talk about your friend, Patrick, that was a firefighter. He, he was inspiring. So tell us a little bit about that, about Patrick. Yeah, so I met Pat. Patrick Brown is his name. He was a very well-known, legendary firefighter in the New York City Fire Department, a captain at Ladder 3 on 13th Street downtown. And I knew him. We practiced yoga together and we're in recovery together. And um, he was a great guy. I, I kind of looked up to him like a big brother. He was also one of those personalities that we have them in New York. I'm sure you have them in Baltimore too, where you can't be around them without everybody coming out and shaking their hand and saying hello. And they seem to know everybody in the city. So he was a bit of a mayor like that. And, um, but he always made you feel like, you know, it's very special. And he uh, was killed on 9-11 in the North Tower. And that impacted me significantly. I lived in New York City downtown at the time. Of course, this year is the 20th anniversary of the attack. So the world will kind of fall silent this year and turn attention to uh, that event. And I had always wanted to 
ride in on the ambulance in his honor in remembrance of him I think he would think it was kind of funny and he he ironically a lot of people who loved him became first responders um his best friend James James Remar a civilian best friend and Bobby Burke the actor who's in everything law and order etc um Bobby became a volunteer firefighter James became a volunteer EMT um, there's another guy who became a volunteer firefighter and I eventually became an, an EMT. Again, not full time. I'm a writer. That's my one true love. <laughs> but I, I like being on the ambulance. I like that life and I like being useful. And we were very useful during COVID. The No Picks After Dark podcast is proudly sponsored by Maggie's Farm. Located at 4341 Hartford Road, Maggie's Farm offers a unique dining experience with delicious handcrafted cocktails and mouth awarding cuisine from falafel to scallops and everyone's favorite honey sriracha cauliflower wings. Open for dinner from 4 p.m. until 10 p.m. Wednesday through Saturday and serving brunch Saturday 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. and Sunday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. with delectable chicken and waffles, shrimp and grits, biscuits and gravy and more. Check out Maggie's Farm on Instagram and Facebook for daily and weekly food specials as well. And I, you know, I, I, you brought me back again, every time I hear 9-11, it gives me chills thinking about that. Um, I was in college when 9-11 happened. And I, if you recall, if you remember South Campus at Syracuse, I lived in Winding Ridge Road up on top of the hill. And I remember walking out of my apartment and a basketball player lived next to me. He said, Aaron, a plane just went to one of the towers. And I remember being a college kid, you're like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't have, time. I don't got time. It's too early in the morning for this craziness. And he was like, no, no, no. Like really go back in your house and just turn TV on. Folks remember cell phones were really big back then. They were big, but they weren't, they weren't like we have now. And I remember going back in my house and I was like, oh, wow. And I caught the second one to happen. Second plane went in. And I remember the first person I thought about was my cousin. And he was a police officer. He was on the scene when everything happened and whatnot. And I remember talking to him afterwards. And he was like, Aaron, I've never seen anything like this in my life. We fast forward about eight to 10 years later. And I remember seeing him again. And he was skinny, very skinny. And I said, what's going on? I'm just not feeling well. I said, okay. And he ended up passing away because he got the fumes and all that stuff from 9-11. He passed away. And that was major. That's the, the 9-11 really it hit me hard because I remember him. I used to go to his house, spend like time with him on Long Island. And, and he was loved by everybody and the police officer and died from that. And, you know, and I just remember just that conversation with him when it first happened. And then, you know, afterwards and then after he got cancer from that. And it just really hit hard. So, again, it's the 20th year anniversary. And it really just the episode of people listening is going to come out during this time because. I really wanted to talk with Jennifer about this and talk about this. So that's the first time I actually talk about the story on this, on this show, actually. Oh, it's, a, it's a sad story. I think so many of us, especially in New York and the region, have those stories of knowing people who were lost in the attacks. And like you mentioned, it's important to me, too. I mean, when the book sold and it sold to an indie, which is kind of like playing in a punk rock band, you know, you don't have all the rules that the big 
four have that where you have to be a commercial success, you can really, they'll take a risk on you and you can, you can be more artistically free. And one of the things that was important to me was that because the book was timed to come out in April um, on the one year anniversary of when the sirens started in New York city of COVID, I, I fought very hard to include 9-11 in the manuscript because it's a New York story. And because as you mentioned, Pat was one of my inspirations for becoming a first responder and he was killed in 9-11 and his brother, who I was close with in the last two years, was an active part of my life who was dying of 9-11 related cancer while I was on the ambulance. And, you know, we we tend to remember in America the fallen that died on that day as the buildings collapsed, who were murdered. And there's a quieter, sadder, more ongoing story of, you know, people like your family member who got sick and died because of the toxin, hundreds of them, hundreds, you know, and I wanted that story to be told as well. Again, again, I thank you for letting me tell that story. I know this is, I always tell people it's your show, but thank you for letting no, me. No, it's our show. <laughs> <laughs> I always tell people, you know, I, I just really, God, I'm getting emotional here, but uh, we're going to push on. So, we talked about how you, why you want to be a volunteer EMT. Okay. We talked a little bit about that because of, you know, Pat and everything. COVID-19, what is your first memory of it when it, when you, we didn't know about it. We heard about it was overseas and you're a volunteer. You're out there working, saving lives. Cause I call you guys superheroes. You were superheroes. Okay. And we can talk about the pay a little bit later on and all that good stuff, but when it first started hitting and nobody knew what it was and you're out there, you know, you have a private mask on at this point. You probably don't even know. Tell, walk us through being a paramedic during this time, because I don't think people really realize how the world was crazy. Like it happened like overnight. It felt like to us. So yeah. I'll let you go ahead. Yeah. Me. I felt like that to me too. I mean, you, like you, I started to hear about it in the news. I heard, I heard stuff coming out of China and then I heard, okay, it seems to be Italy. Italy was when it started to land for me. And I also had flown out to California for a business meeting. And when I flew back to New York, California went into a state of emergency. And then it, I was like, oh, this is landing for like something's happening here. New York started to feel very eerie, eerily quiet. People were uh, closing restaurants early and limiting seating. And so you started to feel this kind of terrifying sense of something's coming, something's coming. And unlike 9-11, which was, you know, there was no, you have the surreality of both events where you're like, this can't be real. You know, you're watching it and you're like, this is too, it's unspeakable. It's, it's beyond what you can grasp. But COVID, I, I think, you know, there were moments of real terror on the street. Everybody was terrified. Everybody was scrambling for PPE and masks and equipment, um, struggling to understand what is this thing? Can we get it? It seems we can get it. Are we, are, can we give it to our family members? You know, a lot of EMTs because of the poor pay live with their families. So there was just so many unknowns. And then I think when it really um, landed was when you started to hear the sirens nonstop 24 seven day and night, all you heard in New York city were sirens. And we were the only people on the street. I mean, it was on the upside, great driving. Like you know, we went everywhere in these ambulances, but it was, it started to feel 9-11-ish in the sense that it was incomprehensible. And like, so 
when you ran into people, I mean, we'll talk about like, what were some things that like stuck out in the book that you wrote that you remember that you're like about COVID and being a responder, like to give walk us a little bit about that, just things that you like really like emphasized. Yeah. I mean, I think the things that, um, that stay with me from COVID is, uh, you know, the, the, the panic that hit the 911 system of really the worried well, wondering if, I think people were locked at home. I know people were trapped at home, locked at home, watching the news, like Cuomo's press briefings, just like kind of gorging on the news and the numbers. This happens after 9-11 too, where you just show repeated circuitry of the planes flying into the towers to the point where you're injuring yourself with the actual footage, right? So I think people were doing that with COVID while we were out on the street. And so I was kind of shocked and exhausted by the number of people calling 911 who weren't in an emergency, who were just panicked, like just pure panic. And then there were the people who were sick and being discharged from the hospitals because the hospitals were overflowing. And then you had also on top of that normal emergencies. And and I think the saddest part for me as an EMT and for a lot of first responders is just feeling like we couldn't do anything to help. Like you take a patient to the hospital and they're out of bed or they've discharged them from the hospital. So now they're going to go into cardiac arrest at home and where they have a less likely chance of survival. And then, you know, normally we fault on the side of taking people to the ER, even if we think like maybe they don't need to go, they could go to a walk-in clinic. And with COVID, you started to feel like you were making these horrible decisions on the street. For instance, you have an elderly patient who fell down and broke a rib. Typically we take that patient to the hospital, even though, you know, they can't, they can't sling a rib, but like to get her x-rays and looked at. And in this instance, you feel like, okay, well, your patient's 90 and they have a broken rib. And if you take them to the hospital, they will get COVID. And with the death toll, like you're going to essentially kill your patient. So I think the that those kind of moral injuries started to happen on the street, which was new. Um, we didn't, we could, because again, typically we just take everyone to the hospital. You know? um, well, well, I had a neighbor that's a nurse practitioner and she was riding with EMTs in Baltimore. And I don't know, don't quote me on this folks, but I don't know if it's university of Maryland or Hopkins, but they had a program where kind of like what you said, if somebody cut themselves pretty severe, or if something happened, she would be, they would call her instead of 911 because they had no hospital beds and she would treat them right on the scene. Yeah. Because she would have to have all the stuff there and it would bandage them up, sew them, sew them back together and hey, keep going because they didn't have the hospital beds anymore. They had yeah. to think outside the box of how can we serve folks who have regular little typical sicknesses, but we can't have give them a bed up. We don't want to give them COVID. And I remember she was telling me about how stressful every day was like every day was something going on. People were calling 911, but it wasn't something that it was something you can go to hospital any day and get it. But they were doing it on like their truck. Yeah. And it was just amazing to hear her stories. Um, I'm sh- and I'm sure you saw a lot of those with, with what you were going through with. The- yeah, it was very ad hoc. It was some arts and crafts situations <laughs> out there. And I think, but I, I do think, One of the difficulties is that in the aftermath, we'll start to kind of learn things from this, like what we can do better, what it teaches us, what we can keep from the disaster that may work. I mean, I think people are are learning that about like working remotely, like, oh, I don't have to go into an office, like I can be productive at home. And I think EMS is the same way where 
we're so desperately in need of more solutions for at-home health and like mobile health that aren't necessarily qualifying people to go to the ER. Like the ER isn't the right place for everyone. If you're in a psych emergency or you're sick and you can't get to the doctor, but you might not qualify for triage in the ER. Like I think COVID kind of helped us understand where those fault lines are. And I think one of the difficulties is just still being in it, like this kind of slog that we're all in where we can't even say, oh, well, looking back, you know, now that it's over, we, here's what we're going to learn. It's like, we're still trying to survive it. It's amazing. It is. It is. You talk about, you contract, you contracted COVID in the book. I contracted what everybody believes to be COVID, but I tested negative for it. I mean, at the time, this was April. So they weren't testing EMTs because we were presumed positive. So it was near impossible. I mean, it took me like week and a half to even find a clinic that would test me. And then by the time I got tested, the swab came back negative. And then when I got the blood work months later, I had no antibodies, but yeah, I had the whole uh, fever, cough, chest pain, can't get out of bed after transporting a patient who essentially died of COVID uh, with my partner who also had COVID and he tested positive and had the antibodies. So, you know, I think that at that point, the tests, we're not fantastic. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's, it's again, it's a novel virus. So the solutions are novel. Well, I know I was talking to a couple of EMTs that live, I have, my neighborhood's fasting. I have nurse practitioner, I have two TMTs, I have two firefighters, I have two police officers that live in my neighborhood, on my block actually. And they would tell me when they would check in to work, they would be, Hey, are you, are you, are you feel, do you feel good? Okay. Go to work. Like it wasn't one of those things like you'd look, you look the other way. Cause we need you during yeah. the time. I don't know if that was like in New York also. I don't know if that was the same feeling where it was kind of like, we'll speak blind ignorance and you, we need you out here. Yeah. Everybody uh, stayed on the trucks. I mean, if you were critically sick or, you know, hospitalized, obviously it's a different thing, but in general, it was like, take seven days off and then get back on that, get back into rotation because they were so short of people in the hospitals and on the front line. You discuss, you talk a lot about the, you know, loss and tragedy in the book. Okay. Give us a little bit, like a little snippet of that. Like what you about talking about that, because it shows a dark grim reality of life. I mean, what's really happens. The no picks after dark podcast is fueled by Zeke's coffee. Have you tried their coffee yet? I'm telling you there is something different about it. Maybe it's because they roast their beans in a fluid coffee roaster, which provides the most accurate roasting temperatures and made with love. You will just have to check it out for yourself and try their delicious food while you're at it. Open now for curbside service, carryout, and delivery, and they also do wholesale. Visit Zeke's Coffee at 4719 Harper Road, open Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. and Sunday, 8 to 5 p.m. Kitchen closes at 3 p.m. Or visit Zeke'sCoffee.com and you too can be fueled Yeah, so I think EMTs, first responders um, of all stripes, cops, firefighters, nurses, doctors, um, paramedics, all of us deal with the realm of critical illness and sickness and injury and death. And yes, there's a lot of tragedy in that world. Uh, There's a lot of loss and, um, and people in really calling you on the worst day of their life. That's what happens in 911. Something's terrible has has happened and you're going to show up. 
But I think, you know, as a country, we're, we're so good at denying death and denying sickness. And we all kind of think, you know, I was recently in Bakersfield visiting my mother and we were talking, she's 79. And I was trying to talk to her a little bit about like, what's the future look like? Do you have a plan? Do you have home health care? Like what? And she said to me about herself and, and my stepfather, she was like, Roy and I are going to die at the exact same time. That's what we've discussed. And I was like, how, how has this happened? And it's this kind of fairy tale thinking, although it does happen with some couples in love where they die one after the other, like right. of a broken heart, essentially. But it's this, um, this kind of refusal to think that like the body's going to fail the, you know, your walker might not fit in the bathroom. What happens if you're in a wheelchair? Who do you want to take care of you? And as a first responder, you know, we, that's our world. We're in and out of hospitals and rehab centers and, and shelters and subway stations. And I don't know that it's all tragic. Like there's also just a lot of resilience of the human spirit that happens on the job. And there's a lot of hilarity. It is a very funny, kooky world. Did you find yourself speaking of that, writing a will during this whole process of COVID? Did you sign like many of you guys talk to each other like, hey, we might not make it through this. Do we have things set up for our family and loved ones? Like going yeah. through like, I mean, because that, that, I mean, we're both young, but we don't think that we could, this could happen that at this age. But while, I mean, I'm curious behind the scenes of working with others during this time, where you, where's your psyche like, we don't know what's going to happen to us next. We could be with this sickness could get us all. Were you looking at it with doing wills? Were you like calling your parents like, hey, this is where everything's at? You know, were you calling loved ones saying, this is where everything at? Was that in the psyche, you know? I think, I think it was yes and no. I mean, I don't, yes, we were all aware that this was a lethal contagion and we were on the front line and we could get it and we could die. Mm -hmm. But I think that very, you have to suppress that if you're going to go to work and help other people who are dying of it. And so there is a kind of facing it and not facing it at the same time. And actually what happened to me was the opposite, which I think happens to a lot of first responders is that my family members and my friends felt what you just described. They were like, Jennifer's going to die. What's she want at her funeral? Like, what are we going to do? Let's call her a hundred times a day. Let's send her call, like mass. Like, so my mail was overflowing. My phone was overflowing. And my job was to tell them that I was indeed not going to die. And whether I knew that or not was like to reassure them and say, everything's okay. But between EMT to EMT or talking with cop friends and firefighters, like we were not in great shape, you know, none of us, we were, it was a difficult, dark time. And that's what I wanted to lead into your mental state, because you talk about your book mentally, there's not really the way out there for you guys out there. Who's there to help you? Um, we're talking about just mentally. Do you, did you think like, is there a psychiatrist just on call? Like, can you call some? Like, I don't know. I mean, these are the things that I we wonder because we forget that you guys have so much on your plate. We forget that. And was there? A, I mean, then we you talk about we start you stick uh, EMT start doing bad things like bad decisions, start drinking a lot more. Some become more sexual, whatever it may be. Like, what is there anybody out there to help? Saying we need help also because. We're helping everybody else, but nobody's helping us. And I know yeah. that we'll talk about that in the book a little bit. 
Yeah, I think I'm always a fan of, um, you know, mental health care for first responders. I think it's a very underserved community. It's also really still stigmatized. The, the, the world of first responders operates apart from the regular world. And it's in many ways a kind of dated world where you sometimes arrive and you hear ideas and you think this idea is great. It's from the 1950s. <laughs> so I think it's been it could be improved upon. But it's a kind of old school world of tradition. Some traditions are quite beautiful. Some are highly problematic. And one of the ways that they're problematic is in the realm of mental health. I think it's getting better. It's therapy is less stigmatized. You have things, tools like critical incident stress management debriefings where you'll pull first responders off an ambulance if they've seen seen something horrific and, mm. and talk, talk it through to them with them. You have peer-to-peer counseling. Um, the fire department has services. So you kind of always feel like you can raise your hand and ask for help um, if you want to. I've been in therapy for years and and doing a type of therapy called EMDR, which is very helpful for traumatic experiences. Sometimes I see those on the ambulance. But I think what you just mentioned, like that still the go-to tools of this world are like drinking, Mm -hmm. high-risk sex lives, and working too much. Like often you'll hear EMTs who will say, I don't have time to go to therapy because I'm picking up another tour. Like they'll just work. They they don't want to feel. And so they'll just keep working. And, you know, the problem with that is like, what happens when you retire and there's uh, 20 years of traumatic experiences waiting to be processed that you've just like worked and had an insomniac life. And then you just sit in your living room chair and have a heart attack. And that's your, that's it. You're, you're, you're done. You know, that happens a lot to retired service people. Wow. Well, again, it's just a stigma. They always, I mean, I know it's just in the black community, African-American community for males. We don't do, we, it was always, you're fine. You're fine. You right. can, you're a man. You can handle it. You can get through things. And I'm not ashamed to say, Hey, I go to therapy. I, I it's nothing. It's not a bad stigma. I don't know why it's such a negative thing. Like, well, you know, it was always taught, Oh, he, he must be special or that. And this is big. These are words that were back in the day that I grew up with. It's not socially appropriate now, but what I'm saying, this is what I heard and what I learned. And then, you know, even like now you're five or six years ago, or you go to therapy, what'd you go there for? You know, it's still there. And I thank you for like telling people about that and talking about how there are, there are resources for you guys out there. I love hearing that financially. You talk about the pay is not great. You talk about that a little bit. What, why you would think the pay will be great for people who are saving lives. The first responders. Why do you think that New York is just so cheap one? It's like, you said 30,000, 40,000, something like that. Is that what I've read or heard? Yeah, it's terrible. I think the starting salary for a fire department EMT is like 35,000. Um, I yeah. mean, all, all first responders, some, some start around uh, a little bit higher, but Department of Sanitation makes more after five years than an EMT or a, typically a paramedic in New York City. It's a nationwide problem. EMS is underfunded. It's kind of the second class citizens of first responders, the third service, you know, and Partly it's because of what you mentioned. People think, um, oh, cop, firefighter, EMTs, they all make the same amount of money. And part of the kind of war cry of this book is to say, no, actually, we do the same type of like life-threatening work, but EMTs make absolutely nothing. And because of that, the turnover rate is so high Mm. because people just can't afford to stay in the field. So you have a lot of people that want to work in the street and do pre-hospital care, that instead of going to a paramedic, they'll go nurse because the salary is higher. And they'll go inside a hospital or 
you know, we lose enormous amount of people to nursing. And then in the fire department, you lose a lot of EMTs that go on to be firefighters because those guys are going to make six figures with overtime after five years. And EMT is going to be stuck making, you know, uh, so little money that they're going to have to work two jobs and live with their parents. Wow. Now, what was what has been the feedback from the book? What has it been the feedback from people who read it? I mean, I tell you, you I mean, you were on like I, I, my analogy is that uh, people laugh about this is back in the two nineties, late nineties, two thousand. Uh, Puff Daddy or P Diddy had a remix of video every week. Okay, <laughs> every time I see you, you're on a, a podcast. You're on, <laughs> you're on PR. You're on everything, and that's beautiful. S- salute! I'm I'm proud of what you're doing, and again, I'm happy to promote what you have going on because I think it's very important and it's very important that you can tell the story. Um, what's the, been the feedback? Cause I mean, it's great through the media side, but what's it been the feedback from family, friends and peers? Yeah, it's been very touching. I mean, I think the most um, heartwarming feedback that I've gotten has been from other first responders uh, from paramedics who worked COVID who said, thank you so much for talking about what it was really like. Uh, Thank you for talking about the pay issue. Thank you for talking about how difficult it was. One of the most touching um, notes I got was from my friend, Mike, who had 9-11 related cancer. His cousin, who's a retired firefighter in California, sent me a note and said the most special part of the book for me was you talking about 9-11 and Pat and and Mike. And thank you for writing this. Like I loved my firefighter career. So I, I've, you know, I've talked to a few fire and police chaplains who are kind of handling the ministry of the streets. And they're like, this book is so overdue in terms of talking about alcoholism and mental health and suicide and first responder tragedies and what really happens on the street, like a, a kind of frank discussion of it. So the, I love regular readers, like people who, who enjoy the book as a, a work of art, but the real, like I get teary eyed when first responders, you know, kind of step forward and thank me. I love it. I love it. All right. So we're going rapid fire. We're going to rapid fire. Oh no, this is where I always choke. Okay. Nah, this is, this is the fun part. This is where you can relax a little bit. You know, we asked 20 questions. I know you were sweating a little bit. I know, <laughs> no, it's, it'll be really quick. It'll be five, six, five or six questions. Since you are a writer, we didn't get into that because I know we, that's a whole different, that's a whole different episode. But who's your favorite author? I have many. So okay. <laughs> uh, I love Frank Bedart, uh, the poet from Bakersfield, George Saunders, Jasmine Ward, um, Oliver Sacks for medical writing, Chekhov, uh, Jim Shepard short stories, Joan Didion on California. So those are a few of my top. Okay. So do you like, do you like crabs? Cause I'm from Baltimore. So we got to say crabs. Do you like, or, or we'll, we'll switch it up. Dungeness crabs in West coast. So we have blue crab in the East coast Dungeness West coast, or are you a lobster person? Oh, it's very difficult because I love both, but I would <laughs> say if, if it were like a last meal situation, I would, and it was like a lobster roll or crabs, I'd probably go with uh, the crabs. Okay, crab cake. You like crab cakes? I love crab cakes. All right, all right, good. All right, all right. The Maryland, Maryland the Baltimore people love this. <laughs> so here we go. Drums or flats? Everybody likes wings. Drums or flats? Drums. Blue cheese or ranch? Ranch always. <laughs> all right. 
you like fiction or nonfiction? I already know the answer to this question. <laughs> I mean, I you know that what's it's changing. I love fiction in okay. the pandemic. I've been really drawn toward nonfiction, but I'm a fiction girl at heart. Okay, okay. Do you still like? Do you like Georgetown? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Georgetown. All right, you're a Georgetown University fan. Come on, that was I a good rivalry back in the day. <laughs> when I think of Georgetown, I think of the neighborhood. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, good call. Good call. Good call. What inspires you every day? Uh, good question. Good art, good food, nature, and, and really people who people supporting people, you know, everyday people of service to others. And what's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, to thine own self be true. Nice. Nice. And what is your favorite food dish? Favorite food dish? Um, Got to get you the hard questions here. I know, I know. <laughs> if, you had, dish. if you had one last meal, what would your last meal be? You know what? I make this cast iron chicken with leeks that is from a New York Times recipe that is for some reason like the most delicious thing I've ever made or eaten. So I'm going to go with that. All right. You are off the hot seat, Miss Jennifer Murray. Thank you. You're off the, tell the listeners where we can find you on social media, where we can find the book. Where we can, are you, are you TikToking? Because that, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I don't like social media, but TikTok to me is like the most ingenious thing I've ever seen in my life. Is oh. it? I feel like I should get into TikTok. That's I'm old. old. I'm 46 years old. So I'm like, TikTok's for the kids. I'm on the gram. I'm on Instagram. I'm barely on Twitter, but I'm on Instagram. I'm probably on. most actively. You're young. Come on. You're young. You're 46 years young. I thought you come on now. Yeah. Yeah. So, what, 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 where can we find you? Right? Where can we find the book? What kind of, where the website so we can plug all this? And folks, I will have all this information when she tells me. I'm going to put it on the site. And I'm also going to put it on our website as a link to get a book. Thank We're going to put it as a link in my link tree. goes right to her book also. When Thank it comes you. Because we really want support. Yeah, right. so First Responder, the memoir can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, um, bookshop.org. If you go to an indie bookseller, they'll usually, if they don't have it in the shop, they'll order it for for you so it's every everywhere books are sold the book is available and then i am online at gingerlid uh which is basically <laughs> my way of saying a redhead gingerlid.com it's my website and my social handles gingerlid the first with a one like like the royalty which is another joke so yeah <laughs> well thank you miss jennifer murphy for coming on the blue Here dark podcast i'm so excited for the baltimore maryland greater baltimore dc area to listen to this episode we got to get you down to Baltimore, get some crab cakes, hang out, and just really just hang out and just meet the listeners down here who are in love listening to this episode. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on, especially this September. I really appreciate it. It, it means a lot for you. It's an honor and pleasure to have you on. I always tell you that in DMs. I'm like, it's an honor for you. To, it's an honor for me to have you on the show, to be personally honest. Uh, and to, for you to take time out your day, you're a New York person. You guys are always in a run. So I get it. So I appreciate you taking that little time out to talk about your book and to just give us your experiences of what you went through and just hopefully gives hope and inspiration to others out there. Thank you so much. All right, folks. Love, peace, and happiness. And we're out.